Well, good morning, everybody. Happy Easter. Can get my microphone on so you can hear me? How's that? Awesome. Happy Easter, everybody. Great to, uh, great to be here together. Today, uh, we're celebrating Easter, and uh, I don't know, uh, we've got a little a graphic there, out of the grave. We need to switch our screens around. There we go, out of the grave. Uh, this is our theme for uh, this Easter Sunday. In fact, we could probably um, say graves into gardens. We opened up with that song. Uh, didn't the band do a great job today? Yeah, did a great job. And I don't know if you noticed our garden theme here. Uh, Kelly and Joni Wilson and Rhea put all this together uh, just a few days ago. It's just unbelievable. It's great. Yeah. And today we're thinking about this idea of graves into gardens. And I didn't come up with that. That's a song that was written by Elevation Worship, released a few years ago. I'm sure lots of churches all around the world are singing that song uh, this morning. Turning graves into gardens is what is what God does. I was actually reading about the inspiration. Like, where did that song come from? The whole graves into gardens theme. Where did that come from? And actually, the inspiration of the song is this obscure passage in 2 Kings. And there's all this history, all this stuff's going on. And then in 2 Kings, there's this little story. And so what happened was Elisha the prophet had died. And he was a great prophet, done many miracles. And the, the prophet Elijah had died and been buried. So his body had decomposed and his bones are in this tomb. And so all it says is there's one verse and it's like these guys are burying their friend. So they open up the tomb and they're about to put their friend down into this stone tomb of some sort, cave. And they see raiders coming. So there's like enemy coming and they panic. And so they kind of like drop their buddy into the hole and he lands on Elisha the prophet's bones and comes back to life. And imagine what that guy was thinking when he woke up. Looking up the hole, seeing his buddies walk running away, thinking that's like a stag party gone bad or something, right? The guys, uh, he came back to life. So it's just an obscure passage. And so this song comes, you turn graves into gardens. Bah, 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 bah. You turn bones into armies. That's a, a reference to Ezekiel the prophet who was told to prophesy over this valley of dead bones where there had been a, a, a great battle and all the bones came back to life and formed an army. God was essentially saying, I can do that. I can bring dead things back to life. You turn seas into highways. That's a reference to God opening the Red Sea and making a way of escape and deliverance for the nation of Israel. Ba 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 ba. You're the only one who can. And so when we're thinking about this idea of graves into gardens, we're celebrating a God who is able to take dead things and bring them back to life. Who is able to speak into darkness and call light forth. And that's good news because I don't know where you're at. I don't know what your, you know, what what your situation is coming in today, uh, but I can tell you this, there's hope. Because he's risen. There's hope because he can turn graves into gardens. You guys with me? All right. The better you ch- you're with me, the better I preach. That's just how it works. So, um, normally on, on Easter, I um, I often talk about the history of Easter, and what I mean by that is to talk about what happened when Jesus rose, what, what happened that morning, and we'll touch on that at the end of my message. But we look at the disciples and how they reacted, and then afterwards we talk about you know how Jesus appeared to. Many people, many of his disciples and followers, in fact, hundreds of people saw the resurrected Jesus, which is why the church, even though it was persecuted, took off and infiltrated the whole world because many of the people who saw the resurrected Jesus would later die for that. They, they were so convinced. It wasn't like a myth. It wasn't like, oh yeah, we probably came back to life and it was, it, they saw the resurrected Jesus. And so we often talk about the history, but today I want to do something a little different. I want to talk about the story of Easter. And what I mean by that is I want to talk about how Easter, the story of Easter and what happened that day that we celebrate, how it fits into the greater story of this entire book, the Bible. 
Now, I'm not sure if you're new to the Bible or new to church, then you need to know that Bible simply is, I think it's Latin for book. That's what it means. And inside the Bible, there are 66 different documents, okay, of various kinds, letters, history, uh, prophecy, all kinds of things, uh, poetry. Uh, and there's, all of it was written by 40 or more authors over 1,500 year span. Think about that. Think about a book being written over 1,500 years by this many authors. And here's the most incredible thing about this book. There's one story that flows from cover to cover, as you're going to see today. And we're going to back out and look at the 30,000-foot view of the Bible story from beginning to end. And to do so, I want us to consider the theme of a garden. You're like, how are you going to do that? Well, just stick with me. One of the things that I thought was interesting as I was thinking about this theme of gardens and graves into gardens is it dawned on me, something I knew but I forgot, that the story of the Bible begins and ends in a garden. Did you know that? It begins and ends with a garden, and I'm going to show you that today. And, and when I thought about this, it, it brought to mind something that you find in the Scripture in various texts, and that's called, okay, bear with me, a chiastic literary structure. How many of you know what that is? Okay, awesome. I see a hand in the back. Nobody in the first service, so one person out of both services. That's pretty impressive. So a chiastic literary structure is a, a way to structure content that an author would do and you see this, a simple uh, example of this. Uh, basically what a chiastic structure does is it makes a, a point or an assertion and then builds upon it to a climax and then restates the same things in reverse order. So it makes like a mirror. So everything over here gets reflected over here and stated another way. A simple uh, example of this that you'd be familiar with is a statement like, if you uh, fail to plan, fail to plan, you plan to fail. So you're basically taking those words and reversing the order, and it, it has something meaningful. And that's an example of a really simple chiastic structure. So when I realized that the Bible begins with a garden and ends with a garden, I thought, oh, this is interesting. So let's, you know, bear with me. We're going to walk through the Bible story uh, using this literary structure just as an outline uh, to help us along the way. So the title of my message today, we'll put it up on the screen, It Happened in a Garden. Can we all say that together? It happened in a garden. You're like, what happened? Well, just bear with me and you'll see. Actually, a lot of things happened in gardens. Anybody here know what the first garden was called? The beginning of the Bible, opening chapters. Shout it out. Garden of Eden, that's right. So let's take a look at some of the attributes of the Garden of Eden. That's where we'll pick up our story. So in Genesis chapter 2, verse 8, it says that the Lord God planted a garden in Eden. So it was a garden, the location is Eden, wherever that was, in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And eventually he would form the woman out of the man and they would live in this garden together. It's their home, okay? And out of the ground, important theme for Easter, just saying. Out of the ground, the Lord God made to spring up every tree that's pleasant to the sight and good for food. So in this garden were trees that would sustain uh, the first man, the first woman, and eventually their family. And it says the tree of life was in the midst of the garden. So at the center of this garden, there's a special tree called the tree of life. Nobody ever talks about this because we're also focused on this one, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Right? The tree that was forbidden. The fruit that they were told not to eat. They could eat of every tree, including this one, the tree of life. Now, the tree of life apparently... Um, gave life eternal of some sort. Uh, it's a pretty important tree. It's at the center of this garden of the tree of life. And then it says this, and we'll, uh, we'll stop here. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. So, in summary, okay, this is just recap what we just read. The Garden of Eden 
was created by God for man. It's a home. There was a river flowing through it and the tree of life at the center of it. Okay? Just, I want you to just put all this in your brain because we're going to circle back to it in a little while. They had relationship with God. Adam and Eve walked and talked with God in the garden. So they, they talked with God and walked with Him as, as you and I would walk and talk after the service with each other. They had relationship and access to God. And there was no death, no disease, no sickness, no war. Cancer didn't exist. Diabetes didn't exist. Old age, dying of old age didn't exist. There was no death. And so you have this heavenly kind of utopian place where man and God are living in perfect harmony. And that's beautiful, right? We're all like, yeah, that would be pretty sweet. If we follow the story, let's go back to my chiastic structure. Let's take a look at it. What happens next? Adam and Eve, you know the story. They take of the fruit. God said, in the day that you eat of this fruit, you will surely die. But they don't die physically, but something dies. They know they're naked. And because of their sin, it would eventually lead to their physical death, which was not God's intention, okay? So, so death enters the world because of sin, and if you read the story in Genesis 3, Adam and Eve are, are sent out of the garden and an angel is there guarding the way so they can't go back and eat of the tree of life. Okay, so access denied. They're out of the garden. And um, this sets the stage for world history. If you ever wonder why there's so much death and destruction and wars going on, it's because sin entered the world and because of sin, death and it impacts everybody. And, and there's something inside of every person, whether you've been to church or not. I don't care where you were born, what religion uh, you were raised in. You know there's something wrong with this. This is not the way it's supposed to be. I remember as a kid, and some of you might remember this. When I was a little kid, maybe four or five, I remember the first time that somebody that I cared about and loved, I can't even remember who it was, but I just remember the feeling. It was an, a family member that I cared about passed away. And as a little kid, it was like, what? They're not here anymore? That's not right. And of course, you cry and you're sad, but you're like, there's something wrong about this. And we all get that. I mean, even as a little kid, I didn't, I didn't understand it all, but I knew there was something wrong. It's not the way that it was supposed to be. And of course, when I was a little kid, I think it was like senior kindergarten, I was about five, I told my parents I was going to become a preacher one day, which was cute then, not cute when I was a teenager. Um, I think it's cute now, but uh, it kind of come <laughs> around and... But like literally, like in those days, preachers wore, they didn't wear floral prints like this. Uh, they wore like suit and tie, that kind of stuff. And so I would literally, when I was five years old, I would go to a senior kindergarten and I would wear my little three-piece suit with a tie and I'd have my Bible under my arm. It was really weird, right? You're all like, oh, so cute. No, it wasn't cute. And I went to, I went to school and I would tell kids about Jesus and I'd show them in the Bible and I was going to be a preacher and then I'd come home at night and I'd practice. I'd practice my preaching. I'd line up all the teddy bears on the bed. Just like this. Actually, it just looked just like this. They were all laid out, and I would preach to them, and I would tell them about Jesus, and they would never respond. So, similar to this, but I'm thinking more like the 915 service, but I, but I would practice, right? And, I would, and God was preparing me. And then I remember walking through the house, and this is not, this is true. This is not a lie. Uh, there would be dead insects in the windows. We lived out in the country. I'd find a fly, and I'd find a bee, and they were dead, and I'd poke them, and like, they're dead, and i put them all, the, and I took them outside. Beside the house, there was this area where there wasn't a lot of grass, and I created a cemetery for all the insects that had died in our home. And I would dig little holes, and I'd put them in, and I'd perform a little ceremony, and I'd put a little cross, and I glued the little sticks, and I had these little nice rows of crosses, and I spent days really working on this. It must have been summer holidays, and so <laughs> we did not have video games or a television, so put that out there. So I put all these little rows of crosses and I would perform these little ceremonies just practicing, right? 
Now I'm like, I don't want to do funerals. Uh, but there I was. Until my dad cut the grass. <laughs> there, yeah. Curly Gates Memorial Park was no more uh, gone. But you get it. Like, you can go around the world, different languages, different religions. And in all of them, they're like, there has to be something more. Death cannot be the end. There's something inside of us that goes, Grandma should be here with me. She should be putting her arms around me and sharing stories with me. And, but she's not, and there's something wrong with that. So, so when we look at the story of the Bible, it, 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 there's something missing. Death has come into the world, and, and it's this hopeless struggle that we see. But God had a plan. God had a plan to turn it around. He had a plan to redeem us from sin and to make things right. And so we see now a nation called Israel. God comes to a man named Abraham and says, through you and your descendants, your people, I'm going to bring someone into the world who will bless the whole world. Speaking of Jesus, and through Abraham, and then through Moses, and through David, and through the line of the Jewish people and the nation of Israel, God would eventually be born. And that's where we celebrate Christmas. And Jesus would come to earth to die and to rise again. And these events of Jesus' death and resurrection we're celebrating this weekend are the climax of the structure of the story. They're the climax of human history. Here at the center, Christ dies and rises again. And what happens after that? He makes an, a way for us to trust in Him by faith and become part of a new people. Not based on your genetics. You don't have to be Jewish to be part of this. It's a new people called the church, the people of faith. People from every tribe, tongue, nation, and every generation joining into his new family. And we're living in this period of history, but what is coming is the resurrection. And Paul and others wrote about how there's a day coming soon when Jesus will return in the clouds and those who are dead in Christ and those who trusted in Him who are still alive will get new bodies and meet Him in the air to live with Him forever in heaven, which could also be called the Garden of God. Now, I want you to see this, how this comes full circle, a chiastic or a ring structure. And as we come down to this, into heaven, let's, let's look at some of the verbiage that John the Apostle writes as he has this vision of heaven, and he writes it in the book of Revelation. So the Bible begins in the second chapter with the Garden of Eden, and in the last two chapters of Revelation we see the Garden of God. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, a new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for, his, for her husband. So God is making a new home for God and man to once again live together. And I heard a loud voice from the throne, the voice of God, saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. Remember, Adam and Eve walked with God. They were with God. And then they got sent out. And it says, He will once again dwell with them. And He will wipe away well, they will be His people, and God Himself will be with them as their God. And He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Sounds pretty good, doesn't it? It's a picture of heaven, where the pain and the struggles and the suffering we experience in this life are no more, because everything has come full circle. He goes on to say this, He'll wipe away every tear, and there'll be no crying nor pain, for the former things have passed away. Now, this is the second last chapter of the Bible. In the last chapter, it's important. Revelation 22, verse 1. Watch, let's read this and take a look at it. It says, Then the angel showed me the river, there's the river, with the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and from the land. The source of life in heaven will be God Himself. 
comes out of his throne, a river. And of course, if you lived in Israel, like we don't think of rivers as life-giving because we have so much fresh water in Canada. But if you live in Israel, in a dry, arid country, like a river is, it's everything. It's life. And the river flows from God. And he goes on to say this, through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, oh, look at that. It's back. The tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit in each month. A new fruit every month coming off this tree. Really cool. And then he says this, the leaves of the tree, I love this, were for the healing of the nation. So once again, there's a new home where God and his people will live together. And in that place, there is the river of life and the tree of life is once again available for us to partake of. We have relationship with God once more, God and his people living together in the same city and garden and there's no more death, sickness, war. Do you see it? Let's take a look at my structure again, okay? This is what made me think of this chiastic structure when I was reading through. It's like, okay, everything that happens here is then re-mirrored over here, and we come full circle from the Garden of Eden through to the Garden of God. God had a plan. And it happened in a garden. Now, if you can go back uh, to that graph one more time for me, Henry, I want to show everybody something. This is the central point in history. When you read the Bible and you're reading about Abraham and David and Moses and the law and the prophets, all of them are pointing to this, the death and resurrection of Jesus, at the center, the climax of the story. And then when you read what Paul and the apostles write and the early church fathers, they're all looking back. In fact, in heaven, they're going to be singing, worthy is the lamb who is slain. They're looking back to what happened here. It's a mirror. And if you'll recall, in Eden, at the beginning, the reason, the thing that set all this in motion was Adam and Eve, our physical parents. They failed the test. The test was, eat of anything, do whatever, but don't eat of that tree. And they doubted God, and they wanted what they wanted, their desire, and not God's will, and they took of the tree and set all of this in motion. So they actually failed the test for us. Thank you very much. That's what happened. There's some good news about what happens here at the center of the story. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he was preparing himself to go to the cross to die, to be nailed for our sins in our place as a substitute. And guess where he goes with his disciples? To a garden. And he goes to the Garden of Gethsemane. And when he gets there, his disciples are all sleeping, and he is by himself in grief wrestling through. He knew exactly what was coming, and he was in that place of decision. Am I going to do what I want or what God wants? Am I going to do what is good for me or what is good for them? These lazy, sleepy disciples. And in that place, as he sweat great drops of blood, what did Jesus say? He said, not my will, but yours be done. So Jesus actually passes the test that Adam and Eve failed. And they failed it for us. And Jesus passes the test for us. And guess what? It happened in a garden. It happened in a garden. There's a slide that's going to show up. It's going to be powerful. It happened in a garden. There it is. <laughs> but that's not all that happened in a garden. Today we're here to celebrate the resurrection. We're here to talk about how Jesus came back to life and conquered the grave. When Jesus was um, finally uh, gave up his spirit, and they put a spear and all the fluids came out and they said, okay, he's definitely dead. And they took him down off the cross. They had to bury him. And anybody want to guess where Jesus was buried? I just throw it out there. In a garden. In a garden. Thank you. 
It's amazing, eh? This garden thing just keeps coming back. Jesus was buried in a garden. John 19 um, tells us what happened. And okay, here's how he says it. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. And uh, other gospels tell us they had to do it in a hurry. So they, they did it hastily. They wrapped his body, spices. And it says uh, that they, the place where he was crucified, which is Golgotha, the place of the skull outside the city walls, says in that same place there was a garden. Shocker. And in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. And so Jesus sets his face like flint to die on the cross in a garden. And after his death, they take his body and they place him in a tomb in a garden. And for three days, he lays lifeless in the tomb. His disciples are distraught. Everyone has gone home. Everyone is, is scared. Everyone's disillusioned. And then on the third day, on the third day, as Jesus predicted over and over and over again, he arose. Now, throughout the Bible, again, this book was written over 1,500 years by 40 or more authors. And throughout the book, you have all this incredible imagery about three days. Like three days, Jonah was in the whale or in the fish, and he was in the depths of the sea, thought to be dead. And on the third day, bleh, out he comes to fulfill his mission, to do what God had called him to do and to speak salvation to the Ninevites, Okay. The, the nation of Israel, Moses leads them to Mount Sinai to meet God and nothing happens. But on the third day, guess what happens? The mountain rumbles and God's glory is revealed and the people are shaken by the power and majesty of God. There's all these, on the third day, Abraham took his son Isaac and God said, I want you to sacrifice your son to me. And for three days, Abraham's like, my kid's dead. And he had to think of it that way or he wouldn't go through with it. And so he's taking his son for three days journey and on the third day, God provides a ram caught in the thicket and his son is delivered and he takes his son home. The third day. It's incredible. On the third... Okay, okay one more. One more. We can keep going. One more. Uh, if you've ever read the account in Genesis of the creation, right? On the first day, the second day. Does anybody know what God did on the third day? He caused life to come out of the ground. The seeds of the trees and the plants grew up out of the soil on the third day. Out of the ground it comes. New life. All right, so it's incredible. How is it possible that all this could be so seamlessly tied together in a book that was written? I don't know. It just blows my mind. I just think that stuff's really cool. So, <laughs> on the third day he rose. On the third day, one last thing that happened. Mary, one of the followers of Jesus, went to the tomb. It was Easter morning. The sun had just... Crested over the horizon, dawn had broken, and she arrives at the garden, at the site of the tomb, and the stone is rolled away. And immediately she's thinking, somebody stole the body, what's happened? And so she must have looked in, the body's not there, but she didn't go in, she actually runs to find the disciples. And she tells Peter and John, two of the disciples that were closest to Jesus, the stone's rolled away, his body's gone, and so they run to the tomb. And when they get there, they look in, and sure enough, the body is gone. The, the, the cloths that had wrapped Jesus' body were laid out neatly. And one of them was looking in, and the other went in, and then both of them ended up inside the tomb, and they couldn't believe that Jesus was gone. And they came out knowing that the tomb was empty, Jesus had been risen. And I want us to consider for a moment how they responded. How they responded. Because I'll tell you what they didn't do. Peter and John did not have an Easter celebration. They did not sing songs. They did not have Easter turkey. They did not have resurrection rolls. None of it. 
They assumed the body had been stolen. If there's anybody here skeptical about Jesus' resurrection, you're in good company because the disciples were just as skeptical. Even though they knew He had said He would do it, and they saw Him work miracles and even bring other people back to life, they were like, nah, He couldn't do it for Himself. They were skeptical. And you know what they did? They went home. And what I want us to do is consider how we will respond to the good news of Jesus' resurrection. I hope that we don't do what the disciples did in the next verse, it says this in 20, verse 10. Then the disciples went back to their homes. My biggest, my biggest fear today is that you guys would be here and you're hearing, we're singing about the resurrection, bah, 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 graves into gardens. We're talking about all this cool stuff about what God planned throughout history to sacrifice His Son and to redeem us and to bring us to heaven. And they just go home and be like, pass the gravy. That you'd hear it. And see the empty tomb and go, wow, that's interesting. Wow, that's cool. Wow, that was a great sermon. It was like connected dots, but nothing changes. That would be the biggest fear that I have. And the disciples did that. They just, they just went home and they were just like, I don't know. They're sitting at home scratching their heads. But I want you to notice what Mary does. It says, Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. She just hangs out for a while. Just taking time to grieve. He's gone. She's crying, sad, just stays. She just stays there. And I think sometimes we're too quick to move past some of the truths that we find in Scripture. We see it, we're like, ooh, that kind of hurt a little bit, and then we just kind of move on. It's like, oh yeah, just go home. But Mary just stayed, and she stood weeping outside the tomb. And it says, as she wept, she stooped to look back into the tomb. She's looking into the tomb. And here's something cool. While she's looking into the tomb, she sees something that the other disciples didn't see. They didn't stick around long enough to see it. Again, sometimes we just move on too quick. She sees two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. So there's where Jesus was. Angel, angel. I didn't tell this to the first service because I didn't think I had enough time, but I think you guys, you want to hear this. In the temple of God, there was three areas, the outer court, the holy place, and then the holy of holies, which was a, a small room that was guarded by a big curtain. And only the high priest would go in there once a year, and he would go in after cleansing his body and being, and nobody could touch him. He had to be clean. And he would go into this holy place where the presence of God was. And there was a, a box made out of wood that was covered in gold. It was called the Ark of the Covenant. And he would sprinkle the blood for the sins of the people on the Ark. And the people would be forgiven. And if you've ever seen a picture of the Ark, which I don't have for you, but on top of the Ark, there's two angels, one on either side of the holy place where the sacrifice was made. This is why the angels are sitting on either side of where Jesus had laid, representing that He is the Son of God, and He is the Lamb that was slain, and He is... Anyway, there's so much cool imagery there. But they say to her, let's move on, Woman, why are you weeping? Why are you weeping? See, they know something she doesn't know. She's like, oh, sad, Jesus is gone, the body's gone, what do I do? She's weeping, and they're like, why are you weeping? And having said this to them, they said... She said this to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid Him. And having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but did not know that it was Jesus. So Jesus was right there with her. <laughs> she's looking at the angels. She turns around. There's somebody there. She's like, oh. She doesn't recognize it's him, which is weird because she followed Jesus and cooked meals, spent time with him. He had been in her home. It's like, how does she not recognize him? I don't know. But it goes on to say this, that Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? So Jesus is now talking to her. She sees Jesus. She's talking to Jesus, and she still doesn't recognize him. Anybody else think that's weird? I do. And I'm like, how could Mary be so dumb? 
Like that's what I'm thinking. I'm like, how could she? How could you see him and hear him and not recognize him? And then it dawned on me that like, how often do we see Jesus? We see God at work in our lives, hear Him speaking to us, and we don't even recognize it's Him. Oh, that's just bad pizza. Oh, that's just emotions. Oh, that's we just explain it away. But God is trying to speak to us. He's trying to lead us. He's trying to reveal Himself to us, and we miss it all. How many times do we sit and look at a sunrise and not see the glory and majesty of our Creator? Hold a baby in our hands and not see the miracle that is life that God has given to us. Like, how is it possible that we could miss it all? And Mary sees Him and hears from Him and has no... Supposing Him to be the gardener, of course. First thing in the morning, who else would be out in the out in the cemetery, you know, straightening flowers? It's the gardener. And she said to him, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. And Jesus said to her, Mary. Now something happens in this moment. She's already been talking to him, she's already seen him, and it's like the lights are off. But the moment that he says her name in a way that only the risen Savior could say her name, look what happens next. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. It's like a light switch. Revelation happened. The lights came on and she's like, I know who you are. You're alive. Oh, And she must have been so excited that she jumped on him or something because look what he says next. This moment, yeah, this moment becomes very personal for her. And then Jesus said to her, do not cling to me. Do not cling to me. And you thought social distancing was new. Go back, go back, go back. You thought it was new, but I want you to see. It's not going back. Back a verse. Okay, we'll stay here. Jesus says, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers. There it is. Do not cling to me. See? Jesus is like, don't, don't, don't hold on. And, and here's why he says that. Let's move forward. I have not yet ascended to the Father, So Jesus had yet to go into, not the holy place of the temple, but the actual holy of holies in heaven. And there, before his father, he would present himself the perfect sacrifice. He's like, don't touch me, not yet. i got to go to the father. I'm ascending to my father and to your father, to my God and to your God. And then it says, uh, Mary Magdalene went up and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he said these things to her. This statement, I have seen the Lord, is really powerful because for Mary, the resurrection was not a myth. It was not fact and history. It was personal. Jesus was alive and she knew it. And Jesus had called her name and it had changed everything. The grave of doubt that was in her heart became a garden of faith. The grave in her heart of of, of loss and mourning for Jesus' death now became a garden of life. He's risen. Everything changed for her. But guess what? It didn't change for everybody. Mary literally does what Jesus says. She runs back to Peter and John. So she went there, they came to the garden, and then she stayed, saw Jesus. She goes back to them and she... She, she, she tells them everything that happened. She's like, guys, you'll never believe it. I saw Jesus. They're like, yeah. You've been crying a little bit too much. No, no, I've seen Jesus. Like, you haven't slept. You were up early. Like, they just did not believe it. She's like, he's alive. And she's just full of life. And everything's changed for her. And them, nothing. And this tells me that the resurrected Christ must become personal for you, too. You can't borrow your parents' faith, your spouse's faith. It must become personal for you. And I'll tell you how it happens. God has a way to say your name 
that will bring life out of death. He has a way to speak in a way that you will hear and know it's his voice. That's what God does. Eventually, Peter and John and the other disciples would experience it themselves. And for Mary, that moment when she knew Jesus had risen, it happened in a garden. For me, it wasn't a garden, it was my bedroom when I was four or five years old. I don't remember the details, but I remember being in my bed and talking to my mother and saying, I want to ask Jesus into my heart. And she led me through a prayer. And in that moment, I didn't understand it all. I was a little kid. I mean, I didn't understand theology. I didn't understand chiastic structures. All I knew was something changed in my heart. Jesus came to live in me. And for some of you, maybe it happened at camp. Maybe it happened in a church basement in a Bible study. Maybe for some of you it happened with your parents at home or in a Sunday school class. Maybe for some here today it happened in a gymnasium at Rama Christian School five years ago at an Easter service. But there's a moment when God calls your name, Joe, Mark, Susan, and when you hear your name, it doesn't matter if anyone else knows what's going on, something happens inside of you. A seed of eternal life is planted and begins to bear fruit. And so today what I want to do is I want to uh, just read one last passage and we're going to pray and close this out. Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book. This is how he's closing his book. We've been reading from John. Jesus did more things than we've even written. But he says, the things that I've written down were written so that you may, what? Believe. That Jesus is the Christ. And when you believe, this is important, here's what it says. That by believing you may have life in his name. Sometimes we complicate it. We hear him calling our name. And we receive him into our hearts. We accept the gift. It's so simple. And it can just be a moment. It can be a prayer. And coming back to our, our structure here. Everything hinges on this moment. And our hope for the future, our hope for heaven, our hope for our sins being forgiven all happened in this moment. And it happened in a garden. What I want to do as we close is I want to say a prayer with you. And this is a simple prayer that is similar to the one I prayed when I was five years old. And if, if you guys are willing, and maybe many of you have prayed a prayer like this, committed your life to Christ, you can just go ahead and repeat these words with me. But I want to have an opportunity this morning for those who maybe have never stopped. And maybe today for the first time you're hearing the voice of the Lord calling your name. So if you'll repeat after me, this is a simple prayer of faith. Lord Jesus, I believe... And I receive what you did for me. You died for my sins and rose again victorious. My hope is in you. My life is found in you. And I will live my life for you from this day forward. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Father, thank you for every person that's, that's here today as we celebrate Easter. And Lord, I just pray that as we go from this place, uh, we wouldn't just go home. That as we go and celebrate with our families and eat nice meals, that we would do so in light of the resurrection. That we would carry this hope and this life with us. Lord, help us to live out our faith in a way that changes our families, our friends, and our world. Help us to carry this to... Um, everywhere we go. Thank you for this morning. Thank you for this moment in history that we celebrate today that changed everything. In Jesus' name, amen.